to hear our gospel reading this morning from Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a toll collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of toll collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him again, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good enough. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word today. You know, our tables are very interesting places. We, uh, some of our best stories, some of the times that we cry the most tears and laugh the most sustained periods of time, these come from our kitchen tables. Uh, I remember, you know, a time when my brothers and I would be gathered around the kitchen table and my mom would be in the other room, you know, getting some stuff together for the rest of the meal. And we would, for instance, take the vegetables that we didn't want to eat and we would put them on the high chair tray of my brother Jordan, whom we called Mikey. For those of you that remember the live cereal commercials, hey, Mikey will eat anything. So that was our sort of garbage disposal version of getting rid of the food that we didn't want to eat. So little things like that. Or in our house this week uh, at the Parsonage, our five-year-old asked us very soberly uh, at supper, uh, mom and dad, so when y'all get old and, you know, die, will we go live with Nana and Papa? What's going to happen to us? You know, and you guys are surely on the doorstep of death, and when you do die, like, what, what? Is somebody going to take care of us, or do we just have to fend for ourselves? A little house on the prairie out here. So um, we left her in suspense a little bit, which we think will be good for her formation, but we'll see what happens. Uh, one of my favorite things about this story is how it starts. You know, Jesus has moved on from demonstrating his willingness to heal and restore people to the community through forgiveness, through physical healing, and now uh, Jesus is, is back sort of on the path, and he... Luke tells us the first thing he tells us is that Jesus saw a toll collector named Levi. Jesus saw him. He noticed him. It's a reminder to us that Jesus Christ sees us. He sees you and he sees me. And this is part of the good news of the gospel, that we live so much of our lives wondering if anyone sees us in our unique circumstances and what's uniquely hard and uniquely beautiful for us. And it's like an affirmation that Jesus sees us. He notices. His eyes are upon us. And he calls us to follow 
him. Not just Levi all those years ago, but he calls you and he calls me to follow him. Christ has invited us. He has called us to life. He has called out our name, which echoes throughout the ages when we respond bit by bit or all at once at times, trying to lay hold of that hope that someone has seen us and called our name. This is contrary to something that we've preached at times as a Christian church over the years, that there are only some people who are called. There are only some people that have a chance to hear the good news of the gospel and the rest of them are just out of luck. And the biblical narrative and the great history of the church denies that and says no. Everybody is called. That God's word goes out to all the earth. And everyone with ears has a chance to hear the invitation to come and follow me. Now we see, history also tells us, that not everyone chooses to respond favorably to that. But everyone has a shot. Everyone gets to hear that you and you and you and y'all, I see you. And I want you to follow me. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing in the world. And no one is exempt from that opportunity. Sometimes it seems that the most the people who are the most eager to respond to Christ's invitation are those who have been labeled by the world as sinners or been labeled by people in the church or wherever as sinners. And sometimes we're the most eager ones to respond favorably to the gospel because we know and everybody else knows that we need help. This is the case in the story of Levi, the toll collector, who is with his friends in the story, in the presence of Jesus, and has been labeled by society and reaffirmed by the Pharisees, those toll collectors, those sinners. Luke doesn't give him that name. Jesus doesn't give him that name. They just refer to him as others. But the Pharisees and the others, they call them sinners. So tax collector, you remember in those days, as much as we all love you know, having to pay our taxes, uh, it's nothing like the vitriol and the hate that people had for tax collectors in that day. They, these guys were associated with being snoops, being informants, being corrupt. They were the ones that just took a system that was easy to sneak fraud in, and they just they used it as much as they could. Even the even the good ones got a bad rap because there were so many bad ones. But uh, you know, you had your in the taxation world in, in that day, you had you had the direct taxation, which was like your land tax and your head tax, and uh, that was done and collected by the Jewish council. So that was a little harder for fraud to kind of be a part of. It was a little more cut and dried, and it's kind of how that worked. But there were indirect taxes, think tolls, think levies, think uh, customs that were placed on a variety of things. And these indirect taxes were collected and handled for the state by entrepreneurs. So people would get hired, these headhunters would get hired to, whoever had the best bid, they would get hired to go and collect what was due, these indirect taxes. And so these guys did what any good businessman would do. They promised and delivered an amount that was owed, and then they went out and figured out ways to collect that back to themselves over time with interest and however they could figure out a way to make a living. So that's how it wasn't necessarily bad at the start, but you know, as so many things, fraud enters the picture, and people just hated these guys. I mean, absolutely hated them. They were scum of the earth, and uh, people just didn't like them. All the brunt of all the jokes and all the terrible things wrong with the world, let's blame it on the tax collectors. So, 
it's very instructive that Jesus begins some of his calling with this toll collector and that there are other toll collectors in the picture. And Levi is the only mention we have of him really in Luke's gospel. And he goes on to be, as we know, one of the 12, one of the close disciples uh, to Jesus. And so uh, it's very instructive. He starts out as a toll collector. Later on, we have Zacchaeus who responds favorably to the call of Christ, right? And then invites Jesus in, in his life and begins a, a story of repentance even though he's a toll collector, even though he's scum of the earth. So Levi's response to Jesus is very instructive to us. Levi's sitting down. Jesus sees him, invites him, calls him. Levi stands up, and he leaves everything, and he follows Jesus. And our first kind of concrete example of Levi following Jesus is he throws a party for Jesus at his house. We know Levi is a guy of significant means. Or else you can't throw a party like this. You have to have a house that will hold up to this system. And you have to be able to participate in this story, which if you've ever thrown a big party, it's not easy. A lot of moving parts, a lot of people go into pulling this off in the right kind of space. So that's what's happening. Uh, the uh, Greco-Roman symposium that's kind of alluded to here is, is, is not all that different from what we experience at a big party, whether it be a wedding or a dinner party or something like that. But you can kind of see how it goes. People get together, they invite who they invite, they all get together and they eat dinner. They're reclining at table together. And then what happens after dinner? Right? You clean up a little bit, then the drinks come out, and then the conversation starts. This was very regimented. The drinks would come out, and then the conversation would start. You would have an honored guest like Jesus, in this case, who would be there, and it would kind of be expected that he would stand up and say a few words, some uh, sage, a wisdom teacher. They'd kind of be curious to say, and you know what it's like, you know, when the dreams start coming out and everybody's a philosopher all of a sudden and you have these long, drawn-out conversations and arguments and everything. Well, it's just like that in this day. And what we learn is the Pharisees are complaining and asking why Jesus is eating and drinking with these sorts of people. Luke is trying to tell us that the boundaries for the party the boundaries for the table that Jesus is at, and therefore the boundaries of the kingdom of God are maybe not exactly where we thought they were. That they're extending beyond maybe what we initially thought. That there are people in here that we didn't really expect to see here. And we're wondering why they're here in the presence of Jesus and why Jesus is tolerating them because doesn't he know that they're those kind of people? I think we're also meant to see from Luke's story here that by sitting at a table with Levi and his friends, that Jesus is flinging the door open again for us. That he's adding a few seats to the dinner table for us. That there are places in God's kingdom that we've wondered if we're welcome. We've wondered if we have a chair, a spot, and Jesus is opening that up and saying, hey, come to the table. Let's get together. You're here for the conversation. You're here for the party. Let's discuss this. I missed this the first time I read in the first reading of this this week. I missed this part, and it might be the most important part. Just that reminder, maybe even especially for those of us that have been busy with church work, we've been busy in ministry, and we tend to forget that it all started with an invitation, that it all started with Christ calling to us and saying, hey, why don't you turn and follow me? So here we are. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who you've heard about, who is... Uh, 
you know, spent her life, devoted her life to serving the poor in India, in Calcutta, uh, she had this great quote where she said, um, pray for me. This is Mother Teresa asking the people that she's talking to to pray for her. Pray for me that I may not loosen my grip on the hands of Jesus, even under the guise of ministering to the poor. Isn't that great? Pray for me that I won't lose my grip holding the hand of Jesus, even though I'm here serving the poor. And you all think I'm this wonderful person. But I can't lose sight of the most fundamental and grounding principle in life, which is me holding on to the hand that extended to me in mercy. Mother Teresa knew that in the midst of all of her outpouring, that everything started with an invitation from Jesus, which she's still trying, she was still trying to respond to, and so are we. So Jesus, kind of his big action in the story, as you know by now, is that just being there. He is at a party with the wrong kind of people, and that is a very provocative action, it turns out, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So what do they do? They lash out, and they ask a question. You can just imagine them, you know, it's like when you know you want to say something and you're just waiting on your turn, can you imagine them just eating dinner and just sitting there through it, just rehearsing it, going, oh man, I can't wait. So we get in there, and I'm going to ask this guy what in the world he's doing with all these wrong people. I just imagine that they're at the boiling point. And they finally get in there and they ask, okay, Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And here's that word that they label sinners. Why are you here? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now see, the Pharisees had kind of interpreted the law. They, they saw the table, the home table, as an extension of the temple, which is not a bad thing. That's how we should think. The table extends to the home. The, excuse me, the temple extends to the home. We're supposed to be the same people at home as we are at the temple. So they thought, you got to have clean food. Right, it has to be clean by all the purity laws, and everybody has to wash their hands, all stuff. You gotta have clean food, excuse me, clean food, and you gotta have clean company. The people that are there have to be the right kind of people, because they they did not want to make anybody mad, especially God. So they were just saying we gotta keep things kind of on the up and up here, and they sensed that this was being violated with the people that Jesus was there with here at Levi's house. So what Jesus does is he reestablishes the boundaries not without regulations, right? He brings in even a harder law, so to speak, but it's not the one that we expect. He essentially says, okay, membership at this kind of a party and in God's kingdom is not about who's in and who's out based on who's ritually clean and who's born in this family or that family or who has these kinds of means or whatever, who has this land here or there. The new governing factor for who's in and who's out is simple. It's repentance. He says, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, those that think they're already, they got it made in the shade, but the sinners to repentance. It's all turned around in repentance. Simple, but the life's work for all of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. Repentance. What is repentance? We see it in Levi, who he leaves everything, and at least part of his repentance is using the resources that he has to welcome Jesus into his home 
and whatever message it is that Jesus is going to bring. And then we see it later as people like Levi and Levi and Zacchaeus, they support the mission of Jesus with the resources that they have. Sometimes it means someone literally leaves everything, they turn it all loose, they get rid of it, and they don't ever look at that again. Other times it means they leave, but they retain some things, not so that they can hold on to them for their own good, but so they can share them with Christ and his kingdom. And so we're left with a little bit of tension there. Wait, Levi left everything, but then he had a big party at his house. Did he not leave his house or whatever? I think we're meant to live in that tension. For some people it means leave everything. It's the St. Francis story, right? Leave all the wealth and go. Go away. Disown it. Walk away and don't have a penny to your name. That's some people's discernment of Christ's call. And in others, sense the call to leave everything and to continue to have the things that can be shared with the world. That's part of repentance. It's part of what it means to participate in God's story in the world. Repentance is all about change. It's not about change, just arbitrary change, just change for change's sake, just to be different because we get tired of something. But it's change for our priorities, for our temperament, for our desire, for our resources, for everything that we have, all the gifts that we have and all that makes us up, then is given over as a sacrifice that Christ can put it to use in his world. So um, just one silly little example, as I've been thinking about this week, I've been really convicted about, you know, Lord, have I withheld things from you and from your kingdom just because I just want to cling to them for me and my family? I just want to hold on tight and make sure nobody gets at it, whatever it is, whether it be information or resources or relationships. Uh, so we have a, at our house, you know, it's, it's like the refrigerator overflow. We, when I say we, I, I don't really mind a little bit of clutter, um, but, but we have people in our house that do mind clutter. And one of our solutions to this is to not have a super cluttered refrigerator. And what do you do with all the things that you get from people, the, the school pictures and the Christmas cards and stuff, you put them on your fridge. Well, our alternative to this is, uh, do we have a picture of that, Tyler? This is on a wall in the living room at the Parsonage, and we just this is our way of putting up pictures of all of our redneck friends on the wall for everyone else to see. And some of you are on that wall. Excuse me for calling you redneck. But um, you send us a Christmas card or a, or a picture from your wedding or a picture from your, your kid who's in kindergarten or whatever, this is where it's going to go. And it's our way of sharing our network of people that have loved us and we've had the opportunity to love with anybody that walks in our house. Because it's that old thing about, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of in a way, we're the sum of the people that have in our community. And so, you know, for better or for worse, these people are, they're in it with us. And uh, they've loved us along the way, and we've been able to love them along the way. And, and so we just kind of share in that network. And that's one of the things that Christ has given us, and we feel like that ought to be shared with others. So that and other types of things, that's what Levi's doing. And that's what Luke is inviting us to do, wherever we are, is to repent, to turn, to open our hearts, open our doors, open our tables, open our whatever, that other people might know that Christ sees them and he hasn't forgotten about them. Jesus' response to the protest of the Pharisees has indicated that he's very interested in healing. As we saw in the previous couple of stories, he's interested in healing, not just the body, but the soul. He's interested in restoring people to community, like the guy in the previous story, when he told him his sins were forgiven, and he could be restored to the community. 
that was a big announcement. That was a big deal. Jesus is interested in that, so he describes himself as a physician. And some of us who need it as those who are sick. And he's there for us. It's not a diminutive term. And also in Luke's gospel, the people that we're repenting for the sake of, by repenting for the sake of Jesus, we also have these people in mind. And that is a category of people that Luke calls the poor. Remember when Jesus said in the previous chapter, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach the good news for the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, and so on. And, and the poor is this big category of Luke. And it's not just about people that don't have as many dollars as somebody else, or people that fall below a certain poverty line on paper. The poor in Luke's gospel are people who are disconnected. They are people who have a diminished status in the world. And you all know, we all know, there are many ways to achieve a diminished status in the world. It can be through finances. It can be education. It can be gender. It can be decisions that we made or people that we've surrounded ourselves with. But we find ourselves in a diminished status. And it's hard for us. Hard for whoever. And so this is the poor. And Jesus is saying, these are the people that we're repenting on behalf of, that we're sharing our network with, those who have diminished status in the world. I do think the Pharisees had it right. I think they had the right idea that their tables were supposed to be extensions of the temple. They just missed the spirit of the law in the mix, right? Like we tend to do sometimes. It's got me wondering this week if our communion table should be instructive as to how we govern our family table. I wonder if our family tables should be extensions of the Lord's table. Because we always celebrate at the Lord's table that anyone's welcome with the main criteria being what? Repentance. Seeking to live a new life. Being willing to turn the course of your life to follow Jesus and not other things primarily. Also at the table, we always celebrate how there's enough. The communion table, Jesus always reminds us, I'm the bread of life. I'm the cup of salvation. And if you eat and drink from me, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. There is an infinite amount of resources there. It's not an economy of scarcity at the Lord's table. It's hard for us to love like that and to open our tables like that. But I've been wondering this week if there are people that, should, that I should be inviting to my table that don't know this kind of stuff about themselves, that don't know that there's a God that sees them and loves them. As we look at the second objection, the last objection of the Pharisees, I want to spend just the last part of the sermon just kind of asking ourselves the question. And uh, I'm, I'm borrowing this wisdom from some of our leaders in the church uh, who, when we've gathered for meetings and things, this subject has come up. And it has to do with we as individuals and we as church members, are we inviting? Do we have an inviting culture? Do I invite people to church or to things? And is our church hospitable? Are we welcoming? Are we inviting? Do we declare and say, you are welcome here? Or do we communicate that we're a closed circuit where people aren't welcome unless you have like a chisel and an axe and you can fight your way in? 
Are we opening doors? Are we making on-ramps and pathways for people to come and be connected to Jesus through a local church? I'm asking myself that question. I'm inviting us to ask it together as a church. Instructed by our leaders and by Jesus. Jesus invites the Pharisees. This is crazy. Even as they protest, he's inviting them. He's inviting them to repent. Again, every time he talks to them, he invites them to repent. And very often, they do, which is beautiful. Sometimes they don't, but very often they do. So the last objection that the Pharisees offered uh, with, with Jesus there at table, them observing everything, they say, okay, Jesus, we've noticed that the disciples of John and our disciples, and maybe we remind you that we are Israel's renewal movement. We are the cool new thing. We have the modern worship service. We know what to do. We have the lights. We have the smoke. We are the renewal movement that God sent. Need we remind you. And we fast. Okay? We fast. We're very disciplined about it. Now tell me why do your disciples, or why do you guys, show up at parties? Here you are eating and drinking. And we're fasting. Y'all are having all the fun. And we're doing all the good stuff. Right? So, it's kind of hilarious when you think of it that way. Jesus is obviously pro-fasting. The guy just spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, and his disciples will later fast. Jesus very often fasts. But right now, he's at the party. He's eating and drinking, and the Pharisees are just going, this does not make sense. We don't get this. Why, 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 why? why? We're the renewal movement. Why aren't you guys, if you're a renewal movement, why aren't y'all fasting? And Jesus says, in just a few words, you guys have forgotten the story, haven't you? Have you forgotten that we as God's people have been waiting for a bridegroom to come? We've been waiting for someone to come and rescue us, a Messiah. And when he comes, it's going to be a celebration. So Jesus says, hey, when the bridegroom's here, do you ask the wedding guests to, to fast? It's, of course not. You tell them that it's time to party. The bridegroom's here. Not only that. But y'all have been praying and longing and fasting for the specific purpose of God coming and for the lost to come home. So these lost people, the sinners and the tax collectors, have come home, and you guys want to talk about fasting. It's like it's time to feast. This is what's going on, right? Why do we fast? We fast because we're discontent. We properly fast when we're discontent. We fast during Lent because we want to prepare our hearts for Easter in a more tangible way and we're discontent with the brokenness and the hurt in the world so we fast we want to see something change we need awakening they sing in the song that's why we fast or we fast in the old testament when we lose someone that's dear to us we lose someone in our community that's dear to us and we mourn for a certain period and we fast because something beautiful is gone and so we deprive ourselves of some worldly goods to just suffer together for a while. That's why we fast. We fast because we're mourning, and we fast because we're discontent with the world, and we want to see God do something different in the world. And so uh, Jesus is saying, hey, I appreciate the fasting and all, but I've answered your prayers, and here I am. Uh, so it's time to feast. Obviously, Jesus is saying there will be a time when he'll fast again properly and alluding i think even to his own death then there'll be a time where i'm not going to be with you because i'm about to be killed on a cross in just a little while a few years and and at that time yeah you'll fast you'll fast again but now i'm with you 
and it's time to party. This is why even when we fast, like during Lent, we don't fast on Sundays, right? Because every Sunday is a little resurrection. Every Sunday is a little Easter. So for goodness sake, let's don't be afraid to party on Sunday, right? It's the time. We celebrate. Uh, the lost have come home. We've come home. We don't have to fast today. Let's, let's go on. Okay. So I think one of the passages of Scripture that maybe could have been in the back of Jesus' mind or the story that he could have been calling attention to would be found in Ezekiel 34 as he's talking to the Pharisees. And uh, he's telling them this story about the unshrunk cloth and the old garment and the old wine and the wineskins and all this stuff. And we're going to read from Ezekiel 34 in a moment. Um, but uh, after the parable, I mean, excuse me, after the bridegroom statement, uh, Jesus tells them a parable. And he says, well, uh, just to kind of reiterate, to hit this point home one more time, hey, you don't take an unshrunk piece of cloth and try to patch an old garment with it because it'll tear up the new piece and it just won't work. And you don't, you know, take new wine and put it into old wineskins because it makes the wineskin burst and then you waste the wine and it's a mess. And we often interpret this, uh, and, and at times we should, because this is stories in the back of our mind, too, that we're always needing to have a new heart. This is a very popular theme in the Old Testament. Jeremiah talks about it. Ezekiel talks about it. Hey, I'm going to give you a new heart. You've got a heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh so you can receive this new covenant. It's a good thing. And so I thought that's where we were going with this this week because on my first notes, I was going through it. I'm like, yeah, we're going to talk about sloth and how we just sometimes don't want the new stuff because yada, 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 and we're, you know, we're sinful and we have our stuff. That is a story, and that's one way to talk about this. But I wonder if what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here <clears throat> is he's saying, guys, you are the renewal movement. You are the leaders. You should be leading as a renewal movement, but you're going about it all the wrong way. You guys are here with your new relevant stuff, and you're missing the point of the law. You have all your little minutia that you're bogging down in, and you've forgotten the whole story. What's the story? That God is interested in us as leaders being shepherds. And there are sheep out there that are lost and abandoned and straying, and y'all are supposed to be out there finding them. Instead, you're finding ways to keep them out. <laughs> That's not what you're supposed to be doing. But he's saying the old wine is good stuff. But the world doesn't know about the old wine because y'all are just hanging on to it and messing with it and trying to stick everything in it. Your new projects are messing up the old wine. Stop it. This is the way that it's supposed to be. The old garment is a good garment that the world needs to know about. The old wine is good stuff that the world needs. Stop with y'all's little minuscule renewal projects and get on board with the old story in a new way. So Ezekiel 34, in closing. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, saying, Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Right? These are the leaders of the church. Prophesy and say to them, say to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not bought back the, excuse me, brought back the strayed. You have not sought after the lost, but with force and harshness, you have ruled over them. This is an old story that we have a tendency as leaders to 
just sort of turn in on ourselves and forget the big story that we're a part of, that we're supposed to be the ones going out there and finding the people that are lost and bringing them in and opening the doors and healing and speaking words of grace and encouragement. So just like all these guys are coming in, it's like a homecoming. You know, the, the book of Ezekiel ends with this great vision of the temple. You all remember how the temple and the waters are flowing and there's life everywhere. And the story ends with all of the tribes of Israel kind of having their land back. So it's like everybody's back in their places after all the wars and all the pain and all the stuff that's been lost. Now all the tribes are back. The family's back together. The tribes of Israel are there. and Everybody's got their land. And now there's life in the temple. And it's a vision of heaven. It's a vision of when God makes everything right. So again, the old story is a good story. The old wine is good wine. And Jesus came to open our eyes to not forget that we're a part of that story. That we're a part of that story as recipients of that good wine that changes our lives. And we're part of that story because we're the ones that are supposed to take it back to the And we came from. So as we find our place in this story, and as we find our place as shepherds and as hosts at the party, and as those who are opening our table to unlikely guests like poll collectors, may God bless you. May he bless us. May he give us grace and strength to lead in this way. We're not afraid to open our doors and our tables to people that are different. We need to be reminded that there's a God that sees them and that loves them. Would you pray with me?